Good morning, and welcome to the Darling Ingredients conference call to discuss the company's first quarter 2021 results. After the speaker's prepared remarks, there will be a question and answer session, and instructions to ask a question will be given at that time. Today's call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the call over to Mr. Jim Stark. Please go ahead. Thanks, Tom. Welcome to the Darling Ingredients Q1 earnings call. Participants on the call this morning are Mr. Randall C. Stewie, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Mr. Brad Phillips, our Chief Financial Officer, and Ms. Sandra Dudley, Senior Vice President of Renewables and Strategy. Mr. John Bullock is attending a college graduation today and family comes first. There is a slide presentation available and you can find that presentation on the investor page under the events and presentations link on our corporate website. During this call, we will be making forward-looking statements, which are predictions, projections, or other statements about future events. These statements are based on current expectations and assumptions that are subject to risks and uncertainties. Actual results could materially differ because of factors discussed in yesterday's press release and the comments made during this conference call and in the risk factors section of our Form 10-K, 10-Q, and other reported filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. We do not undertake any duty to update any forward-looking statement. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Randy. Thanks, Jim. Good morning, everyone. Glad you could join us on the call this morning. A year ago, like many other management teams, we all had the deer-in-the-headlights stare happening as a result of the pandemic. Today, we see a very clear future for Darling Ingredients as our dedicated global team of 10,000-plus employees continue to execute our business strategy in a safe and efficient manner. Our earnings for the first quarter of 2021 were certainly energized by a rising commodity price environment, which undoubtedly had a positive impact and enabled Darling to report a record $284.8 million of combined EBITDA for the quarter. The feed segment's EBITDA was 124.4, which was $34 million better than the fourth quarter of 2020 and $54 million higher than the first quarter of 2020. Protein and fat prices averaged in the range of 40 to 60% higher than the year-ago period and have continued to move higher into the current period. Our food segment turned in a solid performance to start 2021 with an EBITDA of $46.4 million, which was approximately 18% higher than a year ago. We continue to see solid growth in our collagen peptide sales and look forward to our biomedical products having an impact in the future on this segment's earnings. In the fuel segment, we continue to see solid results from our European bioenergy business, which reported another solid quarter producing 20.5 million of EBITDA in Q1. Diamond Green Diesel generated another outstanding quarter with a 277 EBITDA per gallon on 78 million gallons sold. Darling's half was 108.2 million of EBITDA, plus our bioenergy results produced a strong 128.7 million of combined EBITDA in Q1 for our fuel segment. As we noted in the earnings release yesterday, both DGD expansion projects remain on time, on budget, and on target. We continue to experience a favorable commodity pricing environment as the U.S. economy recovers with more and more states lifting COVID restrictions. As travel increases, we are seeing energy prices go higher as ultra-low sulfur diesel is trading above $2 a gallon in the NYMEX spot for the first time in a couple years. 
higher levels of economic activity here and abroad, we believe, will support continued strength in the demand-driven commodity cycle that I'll discuss a little later on the call. Now I'd like to hand it over to Brad to take us through the financials, and then I'm going to come back and discuss the outlook and our increased guidance for 2021. Brad? Okay, thanks, Randy. Uh, net income for the first quarter of 2021 totaled $151.8 million, or $0.90 cents per diluted share, compared to net income of $85.5 million, or $0.51 cents per diluted share, for the 2020 first quarter. Net sales increased 22.7% to $1.05 billion for the first quarter of 2021 as compared to $852.8 million the first quarter of 2020. Operating income increased 62% to $199.5 million for the first quarter of 2021 compared to $122.8 million for the first quarter of 2020. The 62% increase in operating income was primarily due to the first quarter 2021 gross margin improving approximately $68 million over the prior year and increasing from 24.1% to 26.2%. This is primarily the result of higher protein and fat prices in our feed segment during the first quarter, as Randy mentioned earlier. Depreciation and amortization declined $6.1 million in the first quarter of 2021 when compared to the first quarter of 2020. This reduction was due primarily to certain assets in our food segment, which became fully depreciated and amortized by the end of 2020. SG&A increased slightly by $1.2 million in the quarter as compared to the prior year, and there were $778,000 of additional restructuring and impairment charges related to the biodiesel facilities shut down in the prior quarter. Lastly, regarding the improved operating income, our 50% share of Diamond Green Diesel's net income was $102.2 million as compared to $97.8 million for the first quarter of 2020. Interest expense declined $2.7 million for the first quarter of 2021 as compared to the 2020 first quarter. Now, turning to income taxes, the company recorded income tax expense of $28.7 million for the three months ended April 3, 2021. The effective tax rate for the first quarter is 15.8%, which differs from the federal statutory rate of 21% due primarily to the biofuel tax incentives, the relative mix of earnings among jurisdictions with different tax rates, and excess tax benefits from stock-based compensation. The company also paid $15.6 million of income taxes in the first quarter. For 2021, we are projecting an effective tax rate of 20%, and cash taxes of approximately $30 million for the remainder of the year. Looking at the Q1 balance sheet, our total debt declined $63.5 million to $1.44 billion, and the bank covenant leverage ratio ended the first quarter at 1.6 times adjusted EBITDA. Capital expenditures were $60.8 million for Q1 2021 and is in line with Darling's planned CapEx spend of approximately $312 million on capital expenditures for fiscal 2021. As you saw at the end of March, Diamond Green Diesel successfully entered into a new 400 million senior unsecured revolving credit facility. The new revolving credit facility matures March 30, 2024 and is non-recourse to the joint venture partners. Use of funds of this revolver, of this revolver are for general uh, joint venture purposes, and as we have indicated in the past, any potential distributions in 2021 wouldn't be considered until the expansion in Norco 
Louisiana is in production in the fourth quarter later this year. Now with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Randy. Thanks, Brad. I'd like to touch on our updated guidance we provided in our press release yesterday, and it can also be found on slide five of our investor presentation. We feel comfortable with the increased range of $1.075 billion to $1.15 billion of combined EBITDA, as the increase is coming from two segments, our feed segment and our fuel segment. The feed segment is certainly benefiting from the rising commodity price environment for both proteins and animal fats and waste oils. And the question you are thinking is, how long does this higher price environment last? Darling, just like every other commodity producer, is watching this like a hawk. Our view is that we got into the current situation because of a demand-driven event which started with China. And unlike a supply shortage driving commodity prices higher, higher prices from a demand-driven event can take multiple growing seasons to rebuild feed inventories. Yes, commodity prices have steep inverses on the futures curve, but that futures price is still 30 to 50% higher than the historical price when you get to that future period. For now, we think the feed segment will perform well for the rest of 2021. We remain disciplined in our evaluation of the volatility this segment can experience and continue to reduce our expenses and improve efficiencies to enhance the margin environment we are experiencing today. The other increase in our guidance is the fuel segment. DGD turned in a record EBITDA per gallon in Q1, and with that, the Q2 margin is averaging in, in the current environment. We are putting a potential range of 225 to 240 EBITDA per gallon for DGD for 2021. As our joint venture partner announced several weeks ago, we believe the startup at Norco expansion will be in the middle of Q4 that DGD will ultimately sell 365 million gallons of renewable diesel in 2021. Those higher gallons and the range of EBITDA per gallon provided puts Darling's half of the EBITDA from DGD between 410 and 435 million for 2021. The DGD Port Arthur project continues to make excellent progress, and we did include a picture of that site on slide 10 of the investor presentation. We are targeting this facility to be operational in the back half of 2023, but the team continues to evaluate if we can improve the timeline and start up Port Arthur earlier. For Darling, we continue to investigate multiple avenues to expand our feedstock footprint, and we believe that we are on a solid pathway to achieve this objective in the very near future. We are encouraged to see more and more states in the U.S. and other countries passing and preparing legislation for low-carbon fuel standards. In our view of the renewable diesel supply and demand equation, we continue to believe that renewable diesel demand will outpace supply for the next three to four years. Then we believe that sustainable aviation fuel market demand should begin to develop and have demand pull for DGD somewhere in that time frame. We think our DGD joint venture is a highly innovative platform and employs one of the most advanced processes for turning waste animal fats and oils into the greenest hydrocarbon in the world. And it goes without saying, DGD is one of the best investments we can allocate capital to for high returns for our stakeholders. But we have other areas of innovation as well. Since the beginning of 2020, Darling has had 100% ownership of EnviroFlight. EnviroFlight is a leader in sustainable insect ingredients designed for animal and plant nutrition, aiming to, to drive transformative change in the global food supply. 
We have made several recent announcements on expanding our operations of environmental flight earlier this year, and we believe this project will position us as the leading developer of proprietary technologies with the first commercial-scale black soldier fly larvae manufacturer in the U.S. We are also pleased with the development of work going on in Europe with our biomedical technology team. Our X-Pure, or Gel-MA, is our latest addition to our biomedical range of ultra-pure gelatins and collagens to the medical industry, and we anticipate that the product offerings will grow as we move forward in the new products being bringing added value to our industry. Our X-Pure products are unique on the market as they come with ultra-low levels of impurities and fully validated traceability of raw materials. Our innovative spirit grows as we continue to look for ways to improve our product offerings across the spectrum of the markets we serve. We view our efforts to add innovative products as well as the ongoing investments we have made to build new and expanded rendering capacity over the past several years as key to improving long-term shareholder value. Sometimes the cycles may not line up for us, but when they do, Darling can generate solid returns and strong free cash flow. I'd like to note that we are proud to be selected by Bloomberg and TB Media Group as one of the 50 sustainable climate leaders in the world. Darling is the original recycler, and to us, that makes Darling Ingredients the greenest company on the planet. Thank you for all of the 10,000 employees for making Darling the company it is today. With that, let's go ahead and open it up to Q&A. Tom? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, press star then 1 on a touchtone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. If at any time your question has been addressed and you would like to withdraw your question, press star then 2. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. And the first question comes from Ben Bienvenue with Stevens Incorporated. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everybody. Morning, Ben. Morning. I want to ask, maybe starting on your, your guidance, and in particular the margin per gallon guidance for DGD, just help us think about um, what's embedded into your outlook there and where you think elements of variability are. Obviously, we had very strong margins in the first quarter. We've seen some components of the margin pressure things a little bit in 2Q. Uh, but but still, as you said, supply demand looks favorable, and some. I just want to kind of better understand what's going into your output. Ben, this is Randy, and I'll, I'll tag team with Sandy here a little bit on this one. You know, the margin environment in Q2 is, is very similar, if not better, than Q1 right now. And, you're, and what's driving it is the the is really the biodiesel industry, which obviously we don't participate in is having to pay substantially more for feedstock than, uh, than we are, as, you know, a majority of biodiesel is made from soybean oil. And then you can see that's in the, you know, at least on the Board of Trade is, is at 65 cents on the non-deliverable option here in, in July. Um, and, and those that are running refined bleached or refined bleached deodorizer are paying somewhere between 75 and 85 cents a pound delivered their locations today. You take that and you have to, in order to produce those gallons, you have to drive marginal profitability and the green premium that we refer to, which is a combination of the RINs and the blender's tax credit for them, are having to do the work. The blender's tax credit's fixed, so therefore it comes down to the RIN, and we've seen you know, some pretty strong escalation in the RIN 
That has then provided with lower feedstock costs at DGD because of waste fats and oils and our free treatment technology, plus the RIN, plus the LCFS has come back a little bit here in the, in the last you know, 30 days. We've set up a Q2 now that uh, I think uh, will, will impress. The balance of the year, um, I think it'd be easier to take guidance up there right now than, than where we're at, but uh, we're going to watch from here and, and see where we're at, and, and I think that's fair enough. Sandy, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think we're very pleased with uh, the margin environment that we're in. I think that historically you've seen that our margins have been very good regardless of the environment that it's in. Um, you know, but there's some things that we're going to continue to watch, especially as we get further out into the year. So there's the Supreme Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. There's the RBOs. There's how feedstock prices are going to progress. But that said, again, you've seen very solid performance out of DGD for an extended period of time, regardless of the environment. Okay, perfect. And then when we think about the feed ingredients business, kind of two-part question here. It seems like the, the outlook there is, I guess, just a reflection of what we see in the futures strips. Um, is there a point at which you you foresee any sort of d demand destruction or price resistance? Um, I know the demand backdrop for the feed environment is quite good. All the protein processors continue to consume at, at high margins. Ethanol is coming back online. That's supporting corn. So it does seem like there's a great demand backdrop for the grain environment. Uh, but I want to get a sense of, you know, how you think about uh, that unfolding through the year relative to your guidance and, and then kind of understanding what's in your guidance if it is reflective of the current futures. Yeah, Ben, this is Randy again. I mean, clearly the optionality that is built in the feed segment we've, we've talked about for the last three or four years, as we said, well, if the, if the pricing comes back, finished product pricing to the 10-year average, everyone will be pleased with the investments we've made. We've now driven past the 10-year average on these in, in the feed segment, the core rendering business and the derivatives from the, uh, the slaughtered animal byproducts. They're benefiting from the, from the corn pricing, the soybean meal pricing around the world. And, and it's really pretty fascinating to me. You know, you, you could probably take our guidance up from the feed segment performance here even because prices have continued to improve here in the near term. We're probably being conservative. We benefit in these, these times when corn and soybean meal rise up because we're an alternative ingredient in many of, of the rations around the world. And so we become, uh, you know, an alternative out there and probably never receive full nutritional value, whether we're at a discount or a premium. So, you know, I think we're pretty well set. I think that our fats and oils will, you know, we're trading today, uh, you know, delivered diamond green diesel, delivered, you know, feed customer in the mid-50s, while the bean oil board's at 65. And, and so that's a historical discount that we've seen. So at the end of the day, anybody that has fears for us having enough feedstock, there's plenty of feedstock here for us. And then the proteins have now moved up to where, you know, soybean mills in the mid-fours, it's slightly inverted. It's not a giant inverse from, to new crops. So we'll, we'll continue to see that strength. The interesting thing on, on this is, and, and we, we've had a lot of internal discussion and narratives about it, 
every time, you know, I, I guess I'm approaching 39 years, almost 40 years in the business now. And when we've ever seen price spikes in the past or cycles, if you will, they've been driven because of some crop shortage, usually a weather event somewhere in the world or in multi-hemispheres as it was in, you know, whatever, 2011, 2010, 11. This is a demand-driven event where the combination of, of meat production to feed animals and fuel production to produce, you know, green energy has now made the lines get very narrow to the point where even what looked like massive stocks of corn and soybeans six to nine months ago now, as a stocks or a percentage of use ratio, you're down in very low levels. And so if you get any disruption in, in crop production, those lines will cross and, you know, you could have $9 corn very quickly here. At that point, you're going to ration something. What's interesting to me is, as you look at the price of chicken, the price of pork, and the price of beef year over year, the, the marketers and the producers have gotten ahead of the curve there. And, and, and have retail prices in, in a, at a point here where they're still profitable even with the higher feeding economics. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be con some compression in the margins of, of the uh, livestock producer here with the higher input costs, but, but there's enough to keep it. There, there's enough profitability in the chain itself then to keep it you know, producing versus contracting as, as maybe we've seen in the past here. So overall, it, it looks pretty darn good around the world for us. You know, raw material volumes, you know, aren't up as sharply as they were a year ago, but they're still up again, population growth around the world this year. And I just don't see much, much changing that here in the near term. Okay, very helpful. Thanks and good luck. Thanks. The next question comes from Manev Gupta with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Um, hey guys, congrats on the beat and an excellent raise. My question here is we have seen a number of small players out there who have never actually done this come out and sign sustainable aviation fuel contracts, a fuel they are nowhere even close to producing and have never actually produced. And then we look at you guys, the best in the business, who has not announced anything major in sustainable aviation fuel as of yet. So my question is, why are the two best guys in business holding back and well, some of the other players out there are announcing these contracts, which we, we are not even sure are executable? Hi, Manav. This is Sandy. Um, so I, I think in terms of next steps, you know, and, and SAF, First, our immediate future is really completing the St. Charles expansion and the Port Arthur Greenfield. Um, you know, we know that these facilities will provide significant carbon reduction opportunities for our customers. Um, and both projects will be completed before we know it. And of course, we've talked about what's next. You know, we've left space at the Port Arthur facility in anticipation that there would be something next. Um, and that's no coincidence. Um, as the market develops, both in terms of transportation and aviation, we'll have more for you. Um, and be assured, when we do move, we'll move swiftly, and that's in line with our first mover reputation. Um, we're well aware that SAF is of, you know, extreme interest to a lot of folks. Um, we believe that there's a real push by the current administration and their significant support in general for reduced aviation emissions. Um, SAF will happen. It's just a matter of time. 
But what we need is we need the mandates and we need the incentives to turn this nascent industry into a real one. Um, we're really in the, in the stages of preliminary engineering on that at DGD as we speak, and we're running all the financial models that you normally would. Um, and as the economics pencil out, of course we want to be a part of it. Okay, great. My, my follow-up question here is, and I think you mentioned this a little bit in the prepared comments, we saw a little bit of pullback in the carbon prices in California. I think it's seasonal, but I would like to know your view. And also, do you think as Washington, Canada, and other places open up, uh, do you think there's a sustainable support for carbon prices, whether it's California, Washington, or even in Canada, or do you think the supply that is building is a little too high so the carbon price can trend down? Yeah. So I, uh, the first thing with regard to California, you know, I think you're, what you're seeing there is it's just a really a matter of that they got hit really hard by COVID. Um, they're starting to open up. Um, things will get better, I think, as we move further into the summer and we see the, the transportation, the summer transportation um, pick up. You'll also see that LCFS pricing pick up. Um, in terms of demand um, worldwide, I think you had asked about that and, and our, you know, what we're seeing out there. Um, you know, obviously there are a number of programs that exist today. There's your California, Oregon, BC. Um, you know, now we soon expect to see Washington join the list of jurisdictions with the CFS. Um, we also recently saw New Mexico make a run at the CFS, um, and it came so close, um, but just ran out of time. And so we think that there's significant momentum going into 2022 as well. And we know that New York continues to work to get a CFS in place um, with hopes that, you know, one will be included in the Climate Action Council's draft recommendations later this year. Obviously, the, the Canadian CFS final regulation will be out at the end of this year and implemented in December of 2022. And now we're seeing provinces like Quebec, which are enacting their own provincial mandates. And then, of course, there's Red 2, which is slowly becoming Red 3. We're early stages of that. Um, but we expect those targets will become more aggressive. So as we look to the outlook in terms of demand, um, you know, we see great things. And as we look at really at our sales deck, which is kind of an indication of that, um, we're very pleased. You know, obviously we have two facilities that are going to be coming online in the not too distant future. Um, and I think that there was probably a point where we looked at ourselves around the room and we said, wow, are we, are we biting off a, a pretty big, you know, piece of the apple in, in filling up these facilities? Um, but the fact is that as we look at going forward, we're probably not going to have the gallons for everyone that wants them. Um, and so, you know, I know that it's not demand-related, uh, demand but at the same time, we're also seeing things on the supply side. So we're seeing projects getting pushed back, and I think you had alluded to something like that, and we're hearing less and less about other projects that we want, you know, that were once widely mentioned. Um, and so I think what we're seeing setting up is there may be, you know, less supply than some would estimate, you know, in order to build the increasing demand that we're seeing. So all in all, I think we think that there's a lot of demand out there, and we're really excited about that. Thank you for taking my questions. Thanks, Manav. The next question comes from Tom Palmer with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thanks for the question, guys. 
So you've seen a big step up in feed segment EBITDA over the past couple quarters. I know this has been covered various times over the years. I just had a couple questions um, to clarify your pricing model. You've given us some helpful detail in the past on how a penny of higher fat prices translates to 8 to 10 million EBITDA in the feed segment. Has there been thought about providing similar figures for the other products in the segment, like protein used cooking oil? And then I just wanted to clarify the timing of your re- revenue recognition in that segment. If we see spot prices at a certain level today, should we be thinking about that as the price you're recognizing immediately? Or do you pre-sell and thus higher prices today flow through on a slight lag? Thanks. Uh, good questions, Tom. I mean, obviously the feed segment has a whole bunch of businesses built in that. Some have a um, you know, price exposure and optionality, other, others, other, others don't. Um, when, we, when we said before a penny a pound um, is 10 million annual and EBITDA, that's all fats and oils globally. You've seen Europe, you know, be at a higher price on fats, although they've moved up above $1,000 or 1,000 euros a ton now. So we're starting to get some more momentum back out of Europe reacting to this. But but overall, that, that model's intact in as we look around. Our proteins have been lagging a little bit of, of what's going on in the world. You know, there, there's limited uses at times for, for some of the animal-based uh, proteins out there. Um, and then the, the final question is that you were asking is the lead lag. The biggest impact to that is the, uh, if I want to say, is the pipeline, the in-transit to uh, Diamond Green Diesel. Uh, we came into the first quarter um, with a very, uh, very short book on, meaning we, we didn't have much sold out in front here. Um, we had beliefs uh, where the market was going at that time and convictions. And, and so we have now, you know, moved on and, and we keep in a, in a strong inverse trying to be sold up. So what's that translate to in, in, in common language? means that there's probably a 40 or a 45 to 60 day lag in recognition of these higher prices flowing into our P&L now. So that's where second quarter, as, as the fat prices moved up late in first quarter, they came back down, they've gone back up, we'll, we'll start to flow through again in second quarter. And, and the question will ultimately be how far, how long does this inverse roll forward? I think we're very comfortable. It's, it's going to roll through, you know, all of third quarter. And then the question is how, how much does it really back off, if any, in, in Q4? And, and really, we're already, as I said earlier, we're such a substantial discount to palm oil and bean oil today on the fats that I don't see much downside there. And the proteins are, are were fairly priced, and you're seeing actual protein price now come back up while, while the oil share is backing off a little bit. So end of the day, um, you know, I think you'll see, uh, you know, as we we're saying in our improved guidance, obviously that comes through a belief that the the feed segment, which carries the new capacity, which carries the optionality, um, will continue to improve uh, for the next several quarters. Thanks for all that color. And I just had a, a follow-up on, on the fact side. You talked uh, last quarter, once Port Arthur is up and running, about the possibility of sourcing from other parts of the world. In your view, is the animal rendering industry in areas like South America built out to the extent to ensure the supply you would like, or is that a strategic opportunity for Darling to explore um, establishing rendering operations? 
Well, I think the first thing, I'll have Sandy help me a little bit on this here, is I would say none of our strategy or investment is built on global origination. We believe that there's adequate feedstock today in North America to support our investments. We've said secondarily that we believe that feedstock will be displaced from Generation 1 technology um, in the biodiesel industry as we bring the capacity online. That's number one. Number two, we sit on a half million tons of fat in Europe today that can move in here if the euro, the freight rate, are in right position. And yes, South America, Australia, New Zealand, Latin America, China to a lesser degree have developed industries that, that can arbitrage fat in here as necessary. Yeah, this is Sandy. So, you know, I think we feel very comfortable about our ability to um, secure feedstock both for St. Charles expansion and for our Port Arthur facility. Feedstock's always been a significant part of any investment thesis that we've done for any of the facilities. Um, and keep in mind that, you know, the build-out of our facilities is really centered around feedstocks, which I think makes us unique compared to, you know, many other projects. You know, our locations are where um, there are a lot of agri agricultural products that naturally funnel into it, and that's no coincidence. Um, we like the U.S. in terms of the supply of feedstocks, and needless to say, Darling produces a significant amount of low-carbon feedstocks in the U.S., and finally, we, you know, we do see growth in feedstocks down the road in general and then specifically within Darling as we continue to enhance our collections and expand our control of various low-carbon feedstocks. So I guess in the end, you know, the feedstock supply chain has always been a differentiator between DGD and other projects. Thank you. The next question comes from Sam Margolin with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Hey, morning, everybody. Thanks for calling. Morning, uh, just to follow up on, on DGD margins and the strengths. Um, so, look, as you know, a lot of people focus on that unit cost spreads between uh, the byproducts and, and sort of fresh vegetable oils. Is there anything else going on on an operational or technical level um, that's worth calling out, maybe a yield outcome? That was that's generally better than modeled, or or something beyond just you know what people see on the screen on a price per pound basis. Um, yeah, you know I think we're always trying to improve our DGD facilities. Really, what I think you know the the most important thing um, is with regard to our pretreatment uh, facilities. That gives us a huge advantage at DGD. It allows us to source you know the lowest cost feedstocks, and you're seeing that show up in our margins today. Yeah, and I think, okay. Sam, this is Randy, that, you know, I think that's well said. I think the secret sauce is, is the, the flexibility of our origination that comes into the pretreatment. Clearly, there's never-ending operational efficiency targets that are happening. Um, Valero's, you know, you know they are just, they're just awesome people in the world of optimizing the, 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 the unit down there between yield. Uh, collectively, we work on CI scores. And then ultimately customer mix, and then we've talked in the past about Arctic grade and, and what were the product mix that we're making. So you put all those together, and, and it's quietly a, a very definable and uh, unique, in a sense to us, uh, advantage that you're starting to see out there. Okay, thanks for that. And then just switching gears to the base business, and maybe I'd ask you to expand a little bit on your 
thoughts on on demand and and how this is a unique cycle i mean just how would you characterize what you're seeing in demand is this a special year for growth on on just a rate of change basis or is what we're seeing sort of also like the cumulative effect of you know two decades of china and the wto and all the people in the world moving out of poverty and 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 therefore is and that sort of adds to the structural duration of of what you're seeing thanks no, it's it's a great question, and and hopefully my crystal ball doesn't have a fog in it. But it, for us, as we looked around the world, you know, our thesis has always been very simple: population growth, wealth creation, and two things happen once there's wealth created. You use a lot of energy, and you like to eat better, and and all those confluences are coming together now around the world. You know, the pandemic probably interrupted that for a better part of a year, but we're, we're seeing appetite for protein around the world like never before. I mean, when you look at China, and I have been, you know, absolutely paradoxical on, on my belief that China has to de-risk their food supply. They don't have water. They don't have land. You know, they're at full production on what they can produce, and then you take the animal disease risk that they've experienced, and, and it, it's really put into the forelight and foresight here of what, what they have to do on the world market. So, you know, six months ago, we, we thought they were replenishing the hog herd, and I think they were. I mean, we would tell you, well, how do we know that? Well, we had pig blood coming into our five blood processing plants in, in China, and then we had pig skin coming into our central China gelatin factory for the first time in almost two years. So that's a pretty good indicator. That has slowed down again tremendously, almost 50% of what it was in November, if not less. So China lost a, a portion of their hog herd again, and the question will ultimately be, how do they, you know, is, is this a cycle that they'll really industrialize, institutionalize, commercialize to bigger farms? I think the answer is yes, and China has a magical way of making things happen, happen faster than most people in the world understand. But we've never seen, a, you know, this type of demand in the world all around. You know, every one of our plants in, in the world is full today to produce meat. And, and I don't see anything slowing down that part of the picture in the, in the near term here. In the near term, I, I, I can't even put years on that. I, I just think once that appetite's there, it doesn't go away. So... You know, that's where we've said and tried to characterize this as demand-driven versus, you know, a crop shortage in North America or South America or the wheat crop got interrupted in the, in the Balkans or the Ukraine. And so this is, this is very different. All said, you know, I, I, I talk both sides here. I mean, China has a magical way of being one of the best traders in the world, and they can change on a dime with policy and, and put a halt on some of this. But I just don't see them doing that this time. They've got such a severe shortage of meat. And the way you look at that is you look at cold storage of, of, of products here in the U.S., and they're, they're really at historical lows. So quietly, the meat is moving out of the country. It's, it's feeding the demand, and I don't see anything slowing down. All right. Thanks, everybody. The next question comes from Ryan Todd with Simmons Energy. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. Um, 
maybe just a, a follow-up on one of your comments during the prepared remarks on on distributions and capital management. I know you know you had talked in the past about external financing uh, for the DGD expansions. You have a revolver that you got there at DGD, I think in in March. Um, but I think you you commented that you you wouldn't be likely to see uh, distributions until um, until Q4 when the expansion starts up. Is that is that how we should think about it, or will you look to tap the revolver over the course of this year, or will you look to, to hold out until the expansion starts before we would see kind of distributions to the parent accelerate? Yeah, Ryan, this is Randy, and, and Brad now, and, and Sandy will we'll try team this a little bit here. From, from a macro perspective, we are now, uh, what is this, May? So June, July, August, September. We're four months away from starting up the second machine. Um, you know, at that time, then you're going to be at a 700, 700 plus run rate, um, maybe 250 a gallon. So, you know, dividends become really possible as we start that new machine up here and start to pull back. I, I don't think pulling from the revolver does much for any, any, any of our capital structures today as we're not in any risk of, of that or have anything to really push on. The, the timing of DGD3 um, as Sandy referenced and as we referenced in our comments, clearly we're looking at, at ways to bring that online as quickly as possible. Um, slated for second half 23, but as we complete number two, clearly we will turn our focus to that. We're blessed right now at the, with the uh, kind of the troubles, if you will, in the, in the petroleum industry or the reduced capital programs there. It's made great labor. And, and, and really the mechanical and pipe fitting shops available, um, rather than sharing them with somebody else for a percent of their capacity, you know, we've got access to them. So ultimately, you know, the timing uh, and the size of the dividends, when you, if you say, you know, even two and a quarter to 250 for next year, 700 million gallons, that's a, you know, that's a, a billion uh, 750, that's 875 million plus we don't see much change in the core business next year, given the demand-driven cycle. You know, you're, you're, hang with us here. You're six months from a pretty significant cash <laughs> coming over the transom. Uh, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Um, maybe since you're talking to expansions, uh, you know, a, a follow-up there. I guess first on, on DGD2, any, any color on how you think about um, – how, how, like how much time that takes to ramp up volumetrically, how much you'll see kind of in the fourth quarter of, the, or the, of this year and into the early part of next year. And then as you were talking about the, the capacity and the pipe fitting and on, on some of the construction side, we've obviously seen a lot of significant inflation in the market right now on raw materials, including steel pricing. Is there any risk to DGD3s? Uh, capital budget, or did you price these contracts before a lot of the stuff kicked in? So this is Sandy. Um, you know, what we've told you is we've given you guidance in terms of, of total volumes for this year. Um, you know, those include volumes from uh, DGD2 coming online as well. Um, we, you know, we expect to be fully up uh, in 22, and, and obviously we're, we're saying that it's prior to that. Um, so, you know, I think you can draw your conclusions there. In terms of construction costs, you know, obviously we're nearing the end of St. Charles expansion and everything uh, appears online and on budget there. And with regard to Port Arthur, 
you know, we've driven pilings, we've poured foundations, we've ordered all of our major equipment, and we did that early on. Um, I know Randy and John Bullock often talk about our first mover advantage, um, and I think when it comes to this, this is clearly an example of that. You know, we moved quickly, and we hit the, the market right in the right window in terms of when we made our purchases. Um, we've also done this before, um, and we have a great model that's been fully engineered and it's working. Um, it's always easier when you have the blueprint than when you're having to make changes on the fly. Um, and we've seen other projects report, you know, 20 to 25% increases in costs um, due to things like that, like you mentioned. Um, we're not. Um, and, I, you know, and, and so I think everything looks very positive. We are not projecting any increases at this point in time. So we're very proud of both of our pro projects and the progress. And I, do, I know that Jim had mentioned earlier that we have uh, some pictures in the, the deck for you on those. Thank you. The next question comes from Craig Irwin with Roth Capital Partners. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Congratulations on the really strong results. Thanks, Fred. Randy, I wanted to ask if you could connect the $1.1 billion in EBITDA, give or take, in the guidance. If you connect that back to uh, free cash flow this year, I know there is uncertainty around uh, exactly how much uh, cash you're going to get from Diamond Green, um, but you know, what do you expect the core operations to throw off? Um, and uh, you know, is it is it is it fair for uh, us to expect cash cash flow to strengthen in the second half? Hey, Craig, this is this is Brad. Um, on free cash flow this year, you know, we've got the uh, 300 plus uh, million, which we more or less the last several years had on capex. Our, although our interest expense is, is coming down, we'll still see that probably, you know, in the 60, 65 range, 40, 45 million of cash taxes. Uh, we'll see kind of how working capital ends up for the year. Right now with the higher prices, there's obviously a little bit of pressure on, on, on changes in working capital. But, uh, you know, we're pretty good shape there in, in Q1, which is typically our toughest uh, working capital quarter. But uh, really, when, when you put that all together with the guidance and where we expect the base business to be, and you disregard dividends for the moment in that discussion, which we just discussed, uh, would be the tail end of the year, and, and meaningful ones certainly next year from Diamond Green, um, we do expect to have noticeable reductions in our, uh, in our debt level this year. We're at 1.67 on our on our leverage ratio, and uh, I think really for for the year, uh, even without dividends, we expect that to to remain at or below uh, two times. Great, thank you. So, so this is a very similar environment today um, to when you did uh, the acquisitions of both Griffin and Vion. Um, you know, I've heard you explain in the past how. You know, environments like this tend to increase the appetite of families that control some of these very large rendering uh, competitors of yours, obviously much smaller than you, but, but large for the market. Um, the question is, are you guys elephant hunting again? Um, is North America attractive for you, or would you be looking more for elephants maybe uh, grazing in South America or Asia? Hunting for zebras. We own all the elephants. <laughs> um, uh, I love it. The, uh, 
Now, it, it, Craig, it's a great question. And, you know, for the first time, you know, we completed a board meeting here this week. And for the first time, the opportunities around the world are starting to surface again post, uh, you know, some pandemic recovery, depending on which continent you're on. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, number one, the balance sheet's in order. Number two, the free cash generation between now and 23-24 is pretty well predictable. And, yes, we would like to grow, and, but we will do it smartly, um, and it will be driven around building the moats around the kind of the four platforms I talked about, being that our renewable energy platform, which is the sustainable aviation fuel and our green energy businesses in Europe, around EnviroFlight, around our, our collagen peptide business. And then, you know, we love any bolt-on uh, core rendering businesses that, that give us, number one, a, a presence in a geography. Number two, gives us the arbitrage of feedstock. So, um, you know, we're actively looking around the world, and for the first time we're starting to see some stuff move that, uh, that may come to market here this year or later this year. Excellent. Well, you guys are definitely executing the long-term vision, so congratulations. I'll hop back in the queue. The next question comes from Ben Kahlo with Robert W. Baird. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Sam, morning, uh, good job. Good job on the call. Uh, uh, Randy, I Thanks. had to look up transom. Um, uh, I didn't know that word. Uh, so three three questions, uh, two two big picture and maybe one uh, minutia. Uh, big picture, you know the the inflation um, the environment. You know you, you you talked about it lasting for you know for the the foreseeable future. I think is what I heard. Um, but you've been in a lot of these environments over those thirty nine years, and so I, I, I guess like how do we get confident around that? Uh, you know your predictability. Uh, the second thing, um, I, you know, I get a question quite a bit. We saw the ADM facility coming on with uh, the soy crush, uh, the announcement yesterday. Or you guys knew about long before. But it, the question is, like, does the returns go to the ethanol business as, as everyone comes into this business and, and what separates that? And then the, the third, the minutial question is, um, how do we think about, uh, you know, SG&A? Uh, I, I see it ticks up a little bit here, and, and obviously there's some leverage in the business, but how do you, you think about your c controlling costs, even though you're in a, in a, in a uh, uh, high in the hog period, let's say? Thank you. Nah, lots of, lots of embedded questions there, then. You know, and, and clearly the business has some tailwinds right now that it, it's faced headwinds for the last five years. I'll, I'll break these down for you. You know, clearly the crushing industry, both here in, in, in the U.S. and in Canada for North America on canola, are responding to the increase in demand or the anticipated demand for feedstock to feed renewable diesel investment in the near future. And I, I think that's all well and good. Uh, the crushing industry will take three years probably to build out. Um, and, and you've seen the scale of some of these announcements, whether it's, it's uh, you know, North Dakota uh, crushing plant for ADM or it's a Sydney, Ohio expansion for Cargill or Canola for Richardson's in Canada and Viterra and Cargill and et cetera, et cetera. And, and at the end of the day, those are for a million ton crush plant. That's a 350, 400 
million dollar investment today, U.S. dollar. The other thing that you've got to look at is, is that any of the renewable diesel stuff that's been announced out there, it, it requires refined bleach, deodorized uh, vegetable oil. And that capacity is also needs to be expanded today. I, I think, Ben, it's pretty simple, and then I'll turn it over to Sandy, is Marathon has proven the great experiment true. They, they used up all of the refining, bleaching, deodorizing capacity in the United States by starting up a plant. And, and so, you know, today I'm hearing that RBD is trading somewhere between 15 and 20 over. That's 1,500 and 2,000 over. Um, and, and so, you know, clearly that capacity is going to have to be expanded too as we go forward. And Sandy, you want to talk about renewable diesel capacity and your views? So renewable diesel capacity, you know, I, th I think we touched on this maybe in an earlier call. Um, you know, obviously there are projects uh, that are moving along and, and moving along well, probably like ours. Um, you know, but then there are projects that, that we're seeing, you know, kind of fall behind in terms of timelines. There are ones that we used to talk about that, that we don't hear much about anymore uh, today. And so while we probably saw this, what some people think is, these aggressive amount of, of gallons coming out on the market, I don't think that we see it as aggressively as some other people do. And then, S.G., do you want to take that? Yeah. Ben, well, my, this is my, my, my question, too, though, is just on the ethanol front. Is, you know, we had this boom-bust cycle, and, 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 and maybe you answered this, um, but uh, just the, uh, spell it out for me because I'm slow. Is why is it different uh, uh, than than that? So Jim, why is RD different than ethanol? Since you're a ex-ethanol, I saved you from that business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Randy. Hey Ben, uh, it, it's it's different because of the boom that you had with ethanol build out was to meet a certain level of the mandate driven by the renewable fuel standard. It's different from renewable diesel because the low-carbon fuel credit or low-carbon fuel standards around the world are about reducing carbon. So you've got more opportunity and demand for lower CI scoring products like what DGD makes versus ethanol and its reduction. So you, you, the, the element of the backdrop is, um, two, it comes from the fuel side itself. Uh, renewable diesel is 100% fungible with petroleum diesel today. You don't have limitations on what you can, can blend in in the amounts. Uh, it doesn't have to be handled separately. It can get moved in the pipeline when it's back up and running. Uh, so you've got you know, a variety of just differences from that standpoint. And, and also it's a cost. If you remember back in the day, uh, you know, when they could get the 20% GHG reduction, they were spending $1.65, $1.75 a gallon to build. We're looking at plants that, uh, you know, at least – the way DDD is built, you know, three around three dollars or higher. So it's the capital uh, limitations and the advent of the just the overall market is is a different from the standpoint of an RFS versus LCFS around the world. And ben, this is Brad. Just uh, just to circle back on the SGNA. Uh, yeah, we were up a, a little tick there, about 1.2 million versus a year ago. Um, we did have a multi-employer 1.3 million additional accrual uh, that we made on a withdrawal liability on the on the pension side, but when you strip that away, we're we're flat. Really, th there you had some increases, uh, several million due to FX when you got the 
Euro USD at 1.2 versus 1.1. Insurance, as we've talked about before, uh, the last couple of quarters is, is up year over year. And then uh, we're actually uh, this year, and as, as Randy and we've talked about the guidance up and the performance, we are accruing more on the compensation incentive side instead of playing catch up maybe a, on a good year later in the year. We've upped that, so that'll be smoother during the year. And, uh, and then on the, on the flip side, we've obviously had uh, a travel offsetting that with travel down and, uh, and the stock awards uh, expenses down uh, versus last year, just the, the difference in the plan and the cadence of that. So I expect SG&A to run right in, in, in this range, absent something extraordinary, which many things run through SG&A, being around, around this level or a little lower than the, the following quarters. Thank you, guys. I know that was a lot of questions. <laughs> the next question comes from Matthew Blair with Tudor Pickering Holt. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my question, and congrats on the, uh, the guidance raise. Um, my question is, with the volatile pricing that we saw in the quarter, were there any significant shifts in your RD feedstock slate? And, and I guess on a similar note, are you seeing any improvements in UCO or DCO availability? Sorry, I was just taking some notes. This is Sandy. Um, in, in terms of our, our feedstock plays, and I, I think you were asking, you know, have we changed our mix based upon what we were seeing going on in the market? And, and, and really, it's no. I mean, I think you everybody knows the three products that we typically use, and that's UCO. Um, DCO and animal fats. And, you know, at any one time, one of those could be higher or lower priced than the others, and we're going to take advantage of that because we have the machine that can do that. Um, and, and so I don't, you know, that really wasn't a, a major thing for us. We, we just took advantage of what we could in the market. Um, in terms of UCO and, I'm sorry, DCO, were you asking if we were seeing more supplies come online? Um, and I, you know, I think that we never really experienced an issue with either one of those supplies. Um, in general, you know, I think that you're, you're seeing more and more um, restaurants coming back online. And so within the, the market in general, there's probably more, more pounds out there. Um, but I don't think that we've seen any substantial. Yeah, and I, Matt, this is Randy. Um, you know, uh, I, always, I, I always smile a little bit what, given the number of conversations that I have on on UCO in this country, um, it, it's not a material amount of the entire feedstock, as we've always said. You know, there, there's two billion pounds of it. Darling has, you know, 40 to 50 percent market share in the United States. We're still down about eight to 10 percent uh, versus, let's call it 2019, and that's predominantly in the in the in the East Coast, West Coast, Northeast, and and California to be exact where they're still not open. So it's really not a material discussion for, for even the RD business. You would never build an RD plant and say your lead feedstock is going to be UCO because there really isn't any, and 50% and of it's already con, um, going to our location. I can't use the word control like Sandy does, but I'm not allowed to. But um, that, that's where we see it. But at the end of the day, I think you're going to see more and more restaurants opening up with food service comes bigger and better demand for, for protein, which should make uh, additional rendering and animal fats available as we go forward here. 
Sounds good. Thanks for all the details. Um, and then my follow-up is for the 30 million gallons of renewable NAFSA that's coming with the Norco expansion, um, what, what market does that go into? Does that go into the chems market? Does that go into gasoline? And, and can you talk about how the economics on renewable NAFSA stack up versus RD? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think renewable NAFSA is a new product for us, which, you know, we're just going to be able to, um, to produce uh, once uh, the expansion's online. Um, and, but like renewable diesel, you know, we, we view NAFTA as a worldwide market, and we're seeing potential opportunities out there around the globe, and it may be in different forms, whether that's in terms of green gasoline or possibly used as a feedstock in another process. I think that there are a number of options, but we're just not quite there yet. Um, we're, you know, we still haven't actually produced it and stripped it, so. Got it, thank you. The next question comes from Ken Zaslow with Bank of Montreal. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everyone. Morning, Ken. Can you dimensionalize how each new policy would create demand relative to the California, because there seems to be some real runway here in terms of the policies that are coming down the pike, and it would be helpful if we could get some, you know, idea of that's going to be the lead to continue the, the momentum, I think. Uh, so, so there's two parts there. Is, am I right that that continues the momentum, and can you dimensionalize how much incremental uh, demand there would be with each new policy that comes down the pike. Yep. So, yeah, I think you're right. You know, we had mentioned earlier that there is an awful lot of momentum. We're seeing a lot, a lot of um, new programs out there um, and potential new programs out there. Um, obviously, uh, we now have Washington State, which is in play, and we're so excited about that. And that's about an you know, 0.8 billion gallon um, market per year. Um, you know, New York is also on that horizon that we're looking at, and that's probably a 1.4 billion per year. New Mexico, which we think has a decent amount of momentum going into next year, is about, you know, a 0.5 to 0.6 billion gallon market per year. And then obviously Canada is going to be coming online, and they're about an 8.5 um, billion gallon market per year. And then I think I'd also mentioned Quebec early on um, as well, and that's probably close to a 1.2 billion um, market itself. And so, you know, there, there are significant volumes out there. there. There's a lot of demand being created, and, and, and these are just what we're seeing today. Um, and so I think that they're, they're you know, the, the future looks really bright. Great. And then Randy, in terms of cash deployment, you did obviously mention the acquisitions. Would, I, the amount of cash that you're going to have is, is going to be very hard to spend. Would you think about um, reallocating that to either uh, you know one-time dividends, share repurchases, anything like that? Because, I, I, again, I, I think it's going to be just hard to spend all the cash you're going to bring in. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it was, uh, as I said, clearly in the, in the, the boardroom the last couple of days, um, that was put on the screen as, as the, you know, as we always call it, the cigar box starts to build cash here pretty strong, you know, strong in 22 and then gets 
massive in 23. Um, at, at the end of the day, Brad has around 250 million of term B to pay down. Then we're sitting with a you know a, a summertime callable or fall callable um, three and five eighths euro bond that's out there, and then we got a five and three eighths five and a quarter five and a quarter U.S. bond in, in 22. Uh, long term, you know, I suspect uh, we'd, we'd like to uh, keep that you know that some of that debt out there, if not the most of it, and, and extend it out when the time's right before inflation moves these rates back up. And then at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the opportunities that we're looking around the world, hopefully we'll find some that make sense, that are fair priced, um, that, that we follow our model on. And then, Ken, you, you set it out right. The board's eventually going to have to evaluate, you know, a one-time dividend, a, a, a regular dividend, or, or buybacks of, of some magnitude going forward. And as we've called it in the boardroom, it's a high-class problem. Don't want to say we're kicking the can down the road, but um, at the end of the day, we still got a little bit of time on our hands before we have to make that call. Great. I appreciate it. And our final question today comes from Adam, Adam Samuelson with Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thanks. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for squeezing me in. Morning. 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 So um, a lot of ground's been covered. Um, maybe uh, didn't hear much about uh, the food business, um, at, both on the quarter and the forward outlook, which, which was unchanged. Um, I know you've been very confident, Randy, on the growth on, on, on collagen peptides and some of the new capacity there. Just help us think about some of the dynamics in play in that business this year and how we should think about exiting the year into 22? Yeah, no, great question, Adam, and a, and a fun one to kind of uh, kind of conclude with. You know, the feed segment clearly, because all the optionality in there looks like the shining star, but the reality is the growth in the annuity side and then the strong cash flows have, have been always in that food segment that have been very predictable. And two years ago, we laid out a plan to add uh, three or four new spray dryers out there and, and, and enzyme conversion units to, uh, to capture the growing collagen peptide world, which essentially for those that are listening is a water-soluble or um, use versus an emulsifier type of application in, uh, in regular gelatin. And, and really, we, you know, not only did DGD ever, did we hit a home run there, we are hitting a home run in the collagen peptide world right now. Uh, from a demand perspective, um, that capacity is all coming online right now. When I say coming online, it's running. The sales ledgers are building. Um, you know, Nestle's investment or ne Nestle Health and Nutrition that invested into vital proteins has clearly given uh, kind of a, a, a great turbocharge to the vital proteins brand and, and allowed us to grow with that. Uh, the number one brand in the world is the as we call it, the blue jar that's out there now, and, and that's, uh, that's Brusolo Darling product that, that's in there. And so we see that continuing to grow very nicely. Um, it's been led by Jennifer Aniston, and she has quite the following out there. Um, she was introduced recently in, in some, some Dutch uh, commercials, and the sales are now five to ten times higher than what they anticipated. So we're excited about it. Um, 
in that area. You know, all said in the segment, you know, Brad uh, and I watched that segment in the 125, 140 range for years and years. And then we said, you know, 160 last year. And then we said we would probably be in the 180s this year. And then we would be in the 200s. I think we're still on that trajectory as we uh, change the product mix here and, and get the capacity sold out. And then we're working in that the biomedical device and, and, and area right now, and that, that's probably two or three years out. But that, in our world, as we, we talk in the boardroom about the next big thing is, is in that those applications for collagen peptides as, as we look around the world going forward. So the Ruslo model as we took it, you know, back in uh, 2014 was, was a hundred percent, you know, gelatin-driven model, on, and then we've rationalized that and, and refocused it to now where it's a both a gelatin and a collagen peptide business, and soon it'll have a third leg to it in the biomedical health and nutrition area. So, hope that helps. Um, it does, and kind of, if I can just squeeze, squeeze one quick one in. Um, I don't think sure. I heard this earlier. What is the capex expectation, both? at the parent, but also what's Diamond Green CapEx this year? On the, uh, on the base business, uh, we're looking at about 310, 312 million. And we did 60 here in, in Q1. And Sandy, you wanna comment about DGB a little bit? Yeah, so you know, this year and next year are really our two big CapEx years. So we're finishing out um, DGD2 this year and starting, or you know, working on DGD3 as well. So, you know, you're talking probably close to $800 million. In both years? In both years. Yes. All right, great. That, that's really helpful. Thanks so much. This concludes the question and answer session. I would now like to turn the conference over to Randall Stewie for any closing remarks. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate everybody's time today and hope you all stay safe. Um, in our IR deck, there's a list of upcoming um, events that we'll be uh, speaking at and look forward to talking to everybody in, in August and stay safe. Thanks for all the questions today. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect.